The new year is here, which means it's time to start new habits and make those yearly resolutions. Mine this year was to get healthier and improve my quality of life, which is why I want to talk to you guys about Noom. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all and don't take into account each person's individual needs which in turn doesn't really set you up for success. Those workout plans you pull from the internet don't think about your individual dietary restrictions, medical issues, or other personal needs. Noom does all of that before building a tailor-made plan that works for you and your lifestyle. It doesn't try to restrict what you eat and never shames you for wanting to treat yourself. And unlike before, I feel the motivation I need to succeed and none of the frustration that came with other plans. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy wherever books are sold. Are you looking to make better, healthier choices this year? Then let me help you out by introducing you to ButcherBox. ButcherBox not only helps you treat yourself to more delicious and wholesome meals, but it takes the guesswork out of finding high-quality meat with humanely raised beef, pork, chicken, seafood, and more that's delivered straight to your door. ButcherBox partners with folks who share their high standards and truly care about how animals are raised. Plus, they're B Corps certified, which makes me feel even better about my decision to be part of the ButcherBox community. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus get, 20 per- plus get $20 off your first order. That's right. New users will receive their choice of two pounds of ground beef, three pounds of chicken thighs, or one pound of premium steak tips for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free offer and get $20 off. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Each story has its key players, the people that inevitably become the victim and the villain. But today's story may seem a little bit different. On December 25th, 1909, a key player in a tragic story was born. A man who, depending on who you ask, was either the victim, the villain, or both. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Let's start with player number one, a man born on December 25th, 1909 and named Joseph Ka'ahawai Jr. Joe to everyone who knew him. After being born in rural Maui, Joe's parents moved to Honolulu and shortly thereafter ended up divorcing with his mother later remarrying and keeping custody of her young son. Together, they lived in the Kalihi Palama area where Joe found himself as part of the Kaluluwela gang. However, unlike the definition of gang that we are used to, this one was simply a group of friends who spent most of their time together. Joe was a good kid, had a good reputation, and attended the St. Louis school through a football scholarship. Unfortunately, due in large part to the Great Depression, Joe had to quit school before graduation and work a series of odd jobs to try and make ends meet, later enlisting in the Territorial National Guard, 
where he cemented himself a pretty decent reputation as a professional boxer with the 298th Infantry Regiment. Now enter player number two, Thalia Massey. Thalia was born from mother Grace Hubbard Fortescue, the granddaughter of the first president of the National Geographic Society and descendant of inventor Alexander Grand Bell, whose marriage to Major Granville Fortescue and out of wedlock birth of her son, Thalia's brother, left her in a less than ideal financial situation outside of what she was accustomed to. A woman who raised Thalia while keeping up the appearance that she still belonged in the upper American class. Thalia eventually met and married Lieutenant Thomas Massey, a rising U.S. Navy officer, and the pair moved to Pearl Harbor in 1930, where Thalia considered herself the most important of the officer's wives, earning her some nasty looks and complete ostracization. Despite her new station in life, the marriage between Thalia and Thomas was not a happy one. Thomas was a heavy drinker and was known to get into some public fights. And after her second miscarriage, Thalia was placed on probation by her husband, who wrote out an informal set of conditions under which he would continue their marriage. All of this brings us to the night of September 12th, 1931, when the Masseys, the Browns, and the Bransons, all Navy couples, went out for the evening to attend a military event at the Alloway Inn, a popular Waikiki nightclub. At around 11.30 p.m., Thalia, after getting into an argument with Lieutenant Stogsdale and slapping him across the face, stormed out of the building and started walking towards Waikiki Park a dance hall not far from the nightclub where her husband, believing she had simply left because she was tired, stayed behind. The dance at the park normally ended at 11.45 p.m., but on this particular night, ended at 11.55. Sometime between 12.20 and 12.45, the Beringer and Clark families were driving down a popular lover's lane called Ala Moana Road and spotted a woman whom they recognized from the Ala Wai Inn. Looking in the opened window, the woman, looking a little worse for wear, asked, Are you white people? And upon confirming, said, Thank God, and moved her hand towards the door handle. When she got inside, Thalia Massey, lips swollen and face bruised, regaled the couples with a harrowing tale of being assaulted and robbed by several local men. Worried for her safety, the driver asked Thalia if she wanted to be taken to the police station but she declined and instead asked if they could take her home. She arrived at around 1 a.m. and, because Thomas was still out on the town, had to break in through her back door to get inside. Now, back at the Alawai Inn, the patrons forced the orchestra to keep things going for about an hour after they usually stopped playing, meaning that, as Thalia was breaking into her own home, the music had just stopped and Thomas made one last attempt to look for his long-gone wife. He eventually gave up and went to an after-party at a man named Rigby's home, where the other officers had planned to meet after the party. He was accompanied by Lieutenant Branson, whose wife had left for the night with their car. Arriving at Rigby's home, the men realized that there was no after-party, so Lieutenant Branson crashed while Thomas went for some late-night snacks, trying to call his wife at home to make sure she made it back okay. After several missed calls, Thalia finally answered the phone telling her husband something terrible had happened to her. Thomas, springing into action, jumped into his car and sped home. After telling him what happened to her, Thomas, against her wishes, immediately phoned the police who arrived to take her official statement. 
here's where things start to shift a little in this story. Initially, when police came to take her statement, Thalia swore she had very little details on the assault as it was too dark to identify any of the men responsible. However, she did alter part of her story to include the fact that, despite denying it earlier, the men had raped her in addition to the assault. Less than 24 hours after she was picked up on the road, the entire island was abuzz with news of the Navy officer's wife who had been gang raped by a carload of Hawaiian men. Now, there is an important piece of history you must know before we continue this story. In 1931, the Honolulu police force was completely divided between two separate factions. The McIntosh faction, led by Captain Nelson McIntosh and consisting of mostly white officers, and the Howe faction, led by Deputy Sheriff David Howe and consisting of mostly Hawaiian officers. Despite the fact that both factions had political backing, both had some pretty iffy reputations. The McIntosh faction was known for its racism towards indigenous Hawaiians, making them a much feared and dangerous group for most of the people living in Honolulu, while the Howe faction was considered a corrupt one by those in the McIntosh faction. Despite trying to keep a peace between the two vastly different factions of policing, their bitter rivalry soon started to affect the cases that came across their desks, with things hitting a boiling point when David Howe was forced into retirement. And before it was finalized, Nelson McIntosh took over his position, meaning all of Howe's men now had to report to a man known for his racism towards Hawaiians. To remedy this, the local sheriff would give some of Howe's men direct assignments to keep them parallel and out of reach from McIntosh and his men. These were the group of people taking over Thalia's case. Within hours of Thalia's report, police arrested a Japanese-American man named Horace Ida, who only a few hours earlier had been involved in a near collision while driving his sister's car with several of his friends, which resulted in an argument between his friends and the couple driving the car. A fight that, at its height, saw one of his friends, boxer Joseph Kahawai, punching the female passenger. So at first, he wasn't surprised by his arrest and expected some sort of charge relating to the fight. However, once he arrived at the station, the fight wasn't even brought into question. And instead, Horace found himself being charged with the rape of Thalia Massey. The police, desperate to solve the case, thought it was all too coincidental that on the very night that Thalia was brutally assaulted and raped by a car full of men, a car full of men got into a fight, resulting in a female getting punched. So they brought in Thalia to try and identify Horace Ida in a lineup. She was unable to do so. And when asked about the car's license plate number, she claimed it was too dark for her to see any of the numbers. She did, however, hear the numbers being broadcast at the police station during one of her rounds of questioning. Numbers being read when police were out looking for Horace and his friends in connection with the fight. So when asked again the next day, Thalia claimed she had a sudden recollection of the license and rattled off the number that was just one off from Horace's sister's car and that one of the men who attacked her had on a brown jacket, the same one Horace was wearing during the lineup. For police, the case against Horace and his friends was looking pretty bad, but all of the men, Joe Kaahawai, Benny Ahakuelo, David Takai and Henry Chang insisted that, while they were guilty of the fight, they had nothing to do with what happened to Thalia Massey. 
Not to mention the fact that, if Thalia's timeline was correct, it would be nearly impossible for them to be involved in both the near accident and the fight, as well as Thalia's assault across town. Despite the fact that the public and the police themselves seemed to be divided on their level of guilt, the five men were indicted and charged with both the rape and assault. While awaiting their trials, rumors started to spread throughout Honolulu that not only had Thalia lied about the rape, but that she was in an illicit relationship with one of the five suspects and was on her way to rendezvous with one of them when she found him in the company of his four drunken friends. Others thought she may have been having an affair with one of Thomas's fellow shipmates and that Thomas, after coming home from the party and finding his wife in bed with another man, beat her for her indiscretion. Grace Fortescue, Thalia's mother, who was constantly concerned about the status of their good name, saw this as a blatant attempt to sully her family's good reputation and, enraged, started a public campaign to attack the defendants. After a three-week trial, one where the local detectives were denied access to the courtroom, the equally divided jury declared themselves deadlocked and a mistrial was declared. According to their lengthy deliberation, none of the evidence lined up and the cracks in Thalia's statements were far too blatant to convict. The men were released on bail while they awaited their second trial. However, some people weren't too keen to wait and see what the second set of jurors decided. On January 8, 1932, Joe Kaahawai, while out on bail, was approached by a man named Albert O. Jones with a summons document stating that Major Ross, the territorial police commander, needed to see him for some further questioning. He was taken by Jones and another man to a rented bungalow in Manoa where the group attempted to coerce a confession from him at gunpoint. You see, that document, that summons, was a forgery, and the man accompanying Albert Jones on his trip was Lieutenant Thomas Massey, followed very closely by Grace Fortescue and Edward J. Lord. Although the exact details remain a mystery, at this bungalow rented by Grace herself, Joe was killed with a single gunshot wound to his heart, severing his pulmonary artery, and was left to bleed to death. Thomas, Grace, and Edward then drove towards Mauna Loa Bay to try and get rid of the body, but were recognized by a police officer as one that was seen kidnapping Joe Kahawai. After forcing the car off the road, the officer found Joe's naked body on the floorboard of the car, wrapped in a damp sheet. A look at the bungalow found two handguns, bloodstains on the floor, Joe's clothing, and the fake summons meaning there was no doubt what happened that day and Albert, Thomas, Grace, and Edward were all placed under arrest. However, unlike most prisoners, all were allowed to await their trial on board a decommissioned Navy ship with comfortable accommodations and prepared meals. While they sat around comfortably, Joe was laid to rest in a funeral that was attended by over 2,000 people the largest funeral service held for any native Hawaiian not of royalty. Charged with kidnapping and murder, the Massey trial, also referred to as the Massey Affair, began on April 4th, 1932, and saw the famed lawyer Clarence Darrow of the Leopold and Loeb trial, as well as the Scopes Monkey trial, as their defense. Hired for a sum of $30,000 to defend the socialite and her co-conspirators. The murder was, according to the press, presented as a, quote, honor killing for the husband and mother of a raped woman. 
a necessary and readily admitted to white response to a non-white threat. Relying heavily on the facts in Thalia's case, the prosecution set out to pick apart what they believed was her act of playing the innocent victim and playing on her feelings of superiority, playing on her feelings of superiority, Thalia angrily ripped up a piece of evidence and stormed off the stand. The courtroom erupted in a supportive applause. After several weeks of trial, 48 hours of deliberation, and far less disputable facts than Thalia's case, the jury found all four guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. They were each sentenced to 10 years of hard labor as racial tensions swelled and martial law was considered. This was avoided after some diplomatic maneuvering between Washington, D.C. and Honolulu. But under the pressure of the Navy, the territorial governor commuted the 10-year sentence to just one hour served in his office. All four left Hawaii days later, thus preventing any retrial for any of the four remaining men in Thalia's original case. And by 1934, Thomas and Thalia were divorced. She took her own life in 1963, and Thomas died in 1987. Grace Fortescue died in 1979, Albert Jones, who eventually admitted to being the one who pulled the trigger, in 1966, and Edward Lord in 1967. All died in complete freedom. Although Thalia's move prevented any retrial, thus exonerating the remaining defendants, Governor Judd hired the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency to further investigate the Massey case. In a 279-page report, they said the following, An analysis of the reports of our representatives together with the reports and statements of the Attorney General's Office, the Office of the Public Prosecutor, and the Police Department, also the testimony at the trial of the defendants, makes it impossible to escape the conviction that the kidnapping and assault was not caused by those accused, with the attendant circumstances alleged by Mrs. Massey. During the American Bar Association convention in Hawaii, sitting on the former site of the Alaway Inn, where this whole story started, a mock trial was held using a copy of the Pinkerton's report and using 21st century forensics to try the Thalia Massey case. They returned with a unanimous, not guilty verdict for all of the defendants, citing the impossibility of being involved in both the near collision and the assault of Thalia Massey. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on December 26th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>